guarantee you that made him feel more awkward. <laughs> Thanks, Nick. Good morning, Grace Hill. How are you? It's good to see you. My name's Alan, one of the pastors here at Grace Hill. And so if you're new, I uh, would love to meet you after the service uh, in the lobby. Um, it would be good just to uh, get to know each other for a few moments. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open that up to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. We'll be uh, reading that in several minutes. You know, there's nothing that quite, at least for me, gets my blood boiling than when you have a scenario where, I'm probably going to run into that at some point, where you have someone in authority, maybe like a politician, a manager, something like that, decision-making power, that makes a decision against the advice of someone with actual expertise, like an engineer, maybe. And in making that decision, because they have their own agenda, people get hurt. Right? So a couple examples, right? Like, for example, the space shuttle Challenger, right? That shuttle launched in frigid temperatures, and there were these engineers who made these O-rings, these seals, that made sure the fuel stayed where it needed to be. And they made phone calls and said, hey, I wouldn't launch the shuttle in those temperatures because those seals probably will not seal properly. Management, right, said, no, we can't have that. We're launching anyway. And, and what happens? The, the shuttle explodes for that very reason. Or I think of like the uh, Flint, Michigan water crisis. You have politicians who say, we can save some money by redirecting, getting our water supply in Flint from the Flint River instead of the Detroit water system. And so they do that. But you had scientists and engineers say, no, 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 don't do that. That river water is corrosive. If you fill those pipes with that river water, then it's going to corrode the pipes and it's going to allow lead to seep into that water and people are going to get sick. And what happened? You had the Flint water crisis where thousands of people got lead poisoning because people with decision-making power made decisions against the advice of those with the actual expertise and knew what they were talking about. And when you read those stories, you go, oh my gosh, the arrogance. I can't believe that, that someone would do that, especially when people's lives are in their hands or they could make decisions that would hurt other people. Like, what possible agenda could they have to make them make that decision? And here's the reality about this morning as we open up the Bible. As I'm reading the Bible this week, studying, getting ready for this morning, the Bible is saying, Alan, that's you. We're going to open up the Bible, and the Bible's going to say, hey, you are the one that does this. Alan is the one that does this, that, that God is creator. He's created all things. He made the universe. He made our bodies. He made our minds and our souls. He knows what is good and beautiful and right. And he has given us agency, free will in our lives. We can make decisions. We have some sort of decision-making power in our lives, don't we? And yet, all the time, 
We make decisions. We live our lives in ways totally contrary to the one who made us. Totally contrary to the, to the one who really has the expertise. Totally contrary where he goes, I know this is what will nourish your soul. And we go, no, I think it's going to be something different. Actually, as we look into the Bible, it gets even worse. It's not just that we sometimes do this or every once in a while make decisions that's contrary to God. Actually, the Bible would say that, that no, that, that something's wrong with us. There's a condition that we have, and now we're predisposed to doing this. Right, so Romans chapter 1. Let me just read a couple of verses out of Romans 1 that explains this to us. Like verses 21 and 22, talking about all of humanity, says, for although they, that's, that's you and me, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they, you and me, we, we became futile in our thinking and our foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, we became fools. Like, claiming to be wise, I know what's best for me. I am in a position to make a better decision here than my maker is. Jump down to verse 24 and 25. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature themselves rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So the Bible would say that there's something going on in us where, where we now have this predisposition of seeing ourselves as wise in our own eyes. In Jeremiah chapter 18, Jeremiah is a prophet, and God says, hey, I want you to go down to the potter's house, and I have a word for you there. So Jeremiah goes down to the potter's house, and he sees this potter forming some clay on his wheel, but the vessel that he's forming is spoiled. It, it falls apart. It's no good. And so the potter gathers up the clay, forms a new ball, gets it on the wheel, and forms something new and good. And God says to Jeremiah, can I not do with you, with Israel, with you, church, can I not do with you what I have done to this piece of clay? Form you into something new. Change you from the inside out. But if we want God to do that in us, then we have to first recognize that there's something spoiled about that vessel on the wheel that needs to be corrected, needs to be saved, needs to be reformed. The, the mark of a mature follower of Jesus, this is what we're going to talk about this morning, the mark of a mature follower of Jesus is this. We are not surprised that God needs to form us into something new. We know we're complicit in the brokenness of this world. We're not defensive, and we're quick to repent. Let me say that again. 
The mark of a mature follower of Jesus is we are not surprised that God needs to form us into something new. We know we're complicit in the brokenness of this world. We're not defensive, and we're quick to repent. God wants to form us into something that is loving and peaceful and patient and kind and good and gentle. And in order for God to do that work in us, we need to accept the fact that we're not there yet, that God is willing and ready to do that work in us. So as you know, over the last few weeks, we have been on this 10-week discipleship journey, a sermon series that we're calling Formed. And we're asking the question, what does it mean that that God is forming in us Christ-like character? And we said that the foundation upon which God is forming this character is his intervening grace in our lives and this calling that he's put upon us to represent him, represent God to the world and his character and who he is. And we said the anchor that holds everything together is his word, that that's where we go to know who God is and who we are and what God is forming us into. And so we've taken care of that. And so today, as we continue in this series, this is week four in it, we're going to begin just to examine what is this character that God wants to form in us? What is it like? How is God going to do that? So we're going to, we're going to hit all sorts of, of different topics, but today... I have two key points I want us to focus in on. So here's the first one. First point for today. That mature Christian character, Christ-like character that's being formed in us is not defensive. Mature Christian character is not defensive. Now, I didn't say that the Christian can never defend themselves. There's a difference between defending yourself when appropriate and being a defensive person. All right, so so here's the difference. The difference is a, a defensive person carries the assumption that it would be preposterous to assume that there is anything wrong with them. It would be preposterous to accuse, confront, criticize, point anything out that might be awry. A defensive person is like someone who's in the starting blocks. And any accusation that comes their way, it's like the gun going off, and they're firing off with their defense. A a defensive person is someone who's quick to speak, quick to defend, and very slow to listen and definitely not curious about what's going on with the other person. Hey, when you said that, I just wanted you to know it hurt my feelings. Wait, oh, oh sorry. I, I, listen, I didn't mean to say it that way. I, I wasn't trying to hurt your feelings. What I really meant was this. That, that, that's not really what I meant. Hold, hold on. You're just out of the chopping blocks. Starting blocks. Quick to speak, quick to defend, quick to, to make sure that, no, 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 you, you have it all wrong, and, and slow to go, huh. Please continue to share with me more about what happened. Hey, you, you left your towel on the floor again. 
uh, okay, why are you always telling me to pick stuff up? Or, sorry, I guess I'll get it. Just, just quick, defensive, out of the starting blocks. And not slow, gentle. Hey, I wanted you to know that I overheard that conversation and I don't think you treated that person really well. What do you mean? You don't understand what happened. You, you, don't, you don't understand. Listen, you should have heard what they said to me. Right? Just, just out. Just defense. Quick. Quick to speak. Defensive. Preposterous that you would even say something like that to me. And I'm making the argument today that that is not reflective of mature Christian character. That Christ wants to form something in us different. And listen, I'm not speaking from a place of strength this morning. My wife would be happy to share that in detail with you afterwards. But, but Jesus wants to form something different, a, a different instinct, a different character, a different response. See, defensiveness has theology. What's theology? Theology is our thoughts about God and what God says about us. Right? Defensiveness has a theology associated with it. Right? That theology says that I'm going to start with this baseline belief that I'm fundamentally good. And it would be rare for something to be wrong. And that this is actually wrong. But that within itself is a theology, and theology always leads to a certain kind of behavior. A kind of behavior where we speak before we listen, where we consider ourselves before we consider the other person, or we consider even God himself. So I want us to read Psalm 51. Because Psalm 51 is a prayer written by King David. And it's in response to a sin that he committed where he had to be confronted by Nathan the prophet. Nathan is the king over Israel. And you may have read the story. It's a pretty famous story. But one day, the king summons this woman to himself, a a woman named Bathsheba, and commits adultery with her. But this woman is married to a guy named Uriah, one of his mighty warriors who's in battle on King David's orders. And so Bathsheba gets pregnant. David goes into cover-up mode and orders Uriah to the front line so that he'll be killed in battle. Adultery, probably rape, power dynamic, and also murder. And Nathan the prophet has to confront David on this. And Psalm 51 is David's response to the confrontation. So let's read this together. I want to read the entire psalm because I, I want you to examine David's response to this confrontation. This is David's prayer. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin for I know my transgressions my sin is ever before me God against you and you only have I sinned 
and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. No. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. I'm curious if you counted as we read this psalm all of the places where David offered God an explanation, a defense, a clarification of his actual intent in response to his sin. None. What does David do? David goes before God and he says, God, I have no need but for your mercy. I have no need but for your grace. I I need you to change me. I need you to cleanse me. There's something wrong inside of me, deep in me, in my inner being. Something wrong deep inside of me, in the secret heart. You don't want all of my religious activity and sacrifices. You don't care about that. You want what's going on inside of my heart. And God, I can't change that. I need you to create in me a clean heart. I need you to renew a right spirit within me because there's something wrong here. I don't deserve your love and your mercy and your grace. See, in Our inner being. Did you notice when I talked about this in verse 6? In our secret heart, there's something going on. We believe we're wise in our own eyes. We don't trust God's ways. We're deeply conditioned to think of ourselves, protect ourselves first, before we're even curious about anyone else. There's something going on deep in the secret heart. And this is exactly why we talk about this Christ-like character that God is forming in us, that the foundation of that is God's intervening grace in our lives. 
This fact that God came and he rescued us while we were still sinning, even when we haven't realized that we were sinning against him. God intervened because something is going on inside of us that we cannot change, and we need God to act first. And David's saying, God, I need you to do this. And this is the reality that we see in the scripture, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The, the good news is this reality that God, in the midst of our sins, sent Jesus to begin that process of forming in us into something new. Of going to the cross to forgive us of our sins. Essentially taking that spoiled vessel and forming it into a new ball. And then beginning the work of forming us into something that's good and redeemed and right and new and righteous. The gospel is this reality that God does that for us only according to his mercy and his grace. And if that is our doctrine... If that is the basis of our faith, then it would be oxymoronic to be defensive. Doesn't make any theological sense to be defensive. See, the good news of the gospel, the good news of this reality that it's God's intervening grace that begins this process, is it actually makes it safe for us to let our defenses down. God won't destroy us. God won't cast us off. God has called us to be a part of a family of believers who won't cast us off. It's amazing. God didn't cast David off. There were consequences, but he didn't cast him off. Because the way God operates is he intervenes with his grace and he begins to form us into something new. And so the foundation of this character that Christ is forming in us is his intervening grace, yes. And then it's also this reality, like we talked about several weeks ago, this calling that he's put upon us to represent him to the world, to show the world through the way that we live who God is, and what his character is. And if we're defensive, we are declaring to the world, this is not true. I don't need grace. It's impossible that I would do anything wrong. But think about it. Like the greatest way that we can declare the gospel to the world, the greatest way that we can represent the character of Christ to the world is through our repentance. Like the greatest way we can declare the gospel to the world is through our gentleness in the midst of being criticized. Think about that. The greatest way that you can declare the gospel to your coworkers is by being slow to speak, quick to listen, and quick to repent when you wrong one of them. Because you will. You're a person. You're a sinner. And saying, hey, I didn't treat you right in that meeting. I was harsh and I was aggressive. And I embarrassed you in front of our coworkers. That was wrong of me to do. I'm really sorry. I'm going to go to those other people and I'm going to tell them that I shouldn't have done that too. They're like, well, who is this guy? 
What's the basis of this guy's life? Like, what's going on? No one does that. The greatest way you can declare the gospel, the good news of this to your kids, is to repent. Go to your kids and say, listen, daddy was wrong when I said that to you. And there is no excuse. And I should not have made you feel scared. And I should not have made you feel small. And I should not have made you feel like you're always wrong. I'm really sorry. Will you forgive me? That's your child seeing the gospel rule your life. That's your theology coming out. Or, or other family members, a brother, a sister, a parent, a neighbor. The greatest way we could declare the gospel is through our lack of defensiveness, our quickness to listen, being slow to speak and quick to repent. Mature Christian character is not defensive and Jesus wants to form something new inside of us through the gospel and this is what it looks like. Here's my second key point for the morning is this. Defensiveness is a condition of the heart and not simply a volitional choice. Defensiveness is a condition of the heart, the inner being, the secret heart, and not just simply a volitional choice. It's something that lives down in the inner being, deep, deep down in us, and it will erupt out of us whether we like it or not whether we know it's happening or not. So really interesting. In 2 Samuel chapter uh, 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12. Go there for a second. I can't remember if I put this on the slides behind me. This is the account when Nathan the prophet confronts David. And so God tells Nathan, hey, you need to go take care of your boy. And so Nathan's going, and so Nathan's probably thinking through, how am I going to do this? This is King David. He's a really powerful guy. This is a pretty hot accusation going on. How am I going to have this conversation? Let, like, look at what Nathan does. Look at this. Second uh, Samuel 12, I'm going to read verses 1 through, I think, 7 or something like that. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, Look at this. He, he tells a story. Hey, David, there are two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now, there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he has no pity. Like David is angry at this guy. Justice. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. 
Now, here's what I'm curious. Why did Nathan feel the need to get David ready with a story to come at him with the accusation from the Lord? My guess is, is that Nathan, I don't know this for sure, the text doesn't explicitly say it, but my guess is, is Nathan's like, yeah, I got to get the king's defenses down. I got to soften him up. I got to kindle a desire for justice in his heart and then come at him and say, brother, king, this is what has happened. And it's interesting for all of us, it's very easy to build on the outside of us a godly veneer, right? This veneer on the outside of us that 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 appears to be gentle and godly, and we know God's word, and we're active in church, and faith is a very important part of our lives. But one of the things that so easily can shatter that veneer and get to the inner being, get to the secret heart, get to the character of the person itself is an accusation or criticism or a confrontation or having your sin pointed out. Oh, how easily. I've seen it. It happens to me. I see it happen in me and others where all of a sudden character changes. Someone different comes out to defend the preposterous. And it's that very inner being that that God is going after. That's what he wants. Like we read that in Psalm 51. For example, verse 6. You know, behold, you delight in truth in the inner being. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Or even go to verses 16 and 17. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You won't be pleased with a burnt offering. You don't want this religious stuff. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart inside that character, O God, you will not despise. And when someone criticizes us or confronts us, when we're made aware of our sin, what begins to happen, right? We feel our bodies tighten. Our heart rate begins to elevate. The blood pressure goes up. Maybe you feel some flutters in your stomach. You feel those temples kind of bulge a little bit, right? What's happening? Your body, the inner being, is reacting. See, because defensiveness is not just a volitional decision. It's something that's deep inside of us, and you can't just turn that off. And it's that place, it's that thing, that inner reaction inside of us that God wants to begin to do some work and form something new and good with that clay. Form something that actually can relax in the midst of this. Because the gospel has set me free and now I have an opportunity to learn of where God is forming even more character in me. Oh, but there's no three steps to form that inside of us. So what does that look like? How, how do I get to that root of defensiveness? All right, I have two quick things, and we'll be finished. How do we get to that root of defensiveness? Two quick things. First is we need to practice being self-aware. Psalm 139, 23 and 24 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there 
be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We, we need to practice this prayer of going, God, I want to be aware if there's anything grievous in me. Let's do the work. So, so what does that look like? Well, first thing is we can begin to ask the question, what happens in my body when I'm confronted with my sin? Because your body is going to give you a greater indication of what's going on inside of you than your mind will. Your mind is going to try to block. Your mind is going to try to defend. But your body is going to react. What's happening there? This is going to be an indication. So now we can start asking questions. Ooh, why is that getting me so hard? Why is my heart pounding through my chest right now? It means you feel something in the inner being. Number one. Another thing is we can begin to be curious about other people's experience being in relationship with me. Hey, do you get scared when you have to come and share with me something hard? Why? What do I usually do? What do you assume I'm going to say? All right, we can, we can start being curious, right? I, I'd be curious what Nathan would say about David. Like, like if you were to like pull Nathan aside and be like, what's it like to be the prophet of the Lord to David? And he'd be like, well, am I giving him good news or bad news? Right? Am I confronting him on behalf of the Lord? Like, what, what is it? I'm sure Nathan has thoughts on what it's like to be around David. Well, listen, we can be curious. What is it like to be around me? If you're married, man, what a mature, healthy, scary question to ask your spouse. What is it like to have to say hard things to me? My guess is it'd be hard for them to answer that question and feel safe. So we can begin to be curious about that. We're, we're practicing self-awareness. And that a third thing that we can do is we can begin to ask those questions and then share them with others. We can go to trusted brothers and sisters and say, listen, I'm trying to grow in this and here's what my wife or my husband or my kids or my coworkers say what it's like to be around me. Here's what I'm noticing happens inside of me when stuff, I'm being confronted with stuff. You can start to go on this journey with other people and begin to talk about this. What a mature, healthy thing for church folk to do. And I realize it's not common. But this is what Christ is trying to form in us. And this is the most robust way we declare the gospel to the world around us. The gospel creates an environment. I can let the defenses down and let Christ form something good and beautiful in me. One way you could begin to do that today is grab the reflection questions in your bulletin that you got. Take those questions Work through them. Get with a good friend. Go get coffee and talk through those. There's some hard questions in there. Put them in there on purpose. Go talk through them. That's the first thing. We need to practice being self-aware to get to this root of defensiveness. Here's the second thing. We need to accept the fact that our character, our inner being is being shaped 
Not just by the sin that we commit, but by the sin that others have committed against us and the hardships that we've endured living in this broken world. In other words, we need to accept the fact that the gospel is not only about forgiveness, it is also about healing. That Jesus is bringing a new kingdom. When Jesus came on the scene in Luke chapter 4, and when he went into the synagogue to declare that he was the Messiah, he grabbed that scroll of Isaiah, and he opened it up, and he began to read, and he said, the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the captives, and he does not say, I am here to forgive you of your sin. Jesus does declare that. That is the gospel. But in that moment, the first thing Jesus says is, I am here so that the blind may see and the prisoners may be set free and that the oppressed would be liberated. I am here to bring a new kingdom. I'm here to bring healing to your bodies and your soul and your mind. I'm here to bring something new. And the gospel is about forgiveness and it's about healing. And we need to realize that our inner being is being developed and shaped by all kinds of habits and defenses and coping mechanisms and protective schemes and distrust for all kinds of people because of the stuff we've gone through living in a world racked by sin. And we don't talk about that in the church. That's not something we really like to go. We don't like to go there. Some people will say, well, if you talk about that stuff, you're just excusing your sin. And no, actually, I think it's an excuse not to even go there to keep sinning. Jesus came to heal our bodies, to heal our minds, to heal our souls. And at this church, we're going to go there because we want to preach a whole gospel Jesus is coming to bring a new kingdom. And for some of us, the root of that defensiveness also means that there's some healing that needs to occur in your soul. And that is the entire topic of our sermon next Sunday. So I hope you'll come. But we're gonna talk about what does it mean that the gospel also brings healing to our whole person. So we'll hit that next week. The reality is that the gospel frees us to be able to confess what David confessed in Psalm 51. God, I need you to do a work of creating a clean heart within me. And so for this morning, I think the first step, right? The first step towards letting Jesus begin to do that work in us is actually coming to the table that's before us. The communion table, a table that represents the broken body of Christ and the shed blood of Christ on our behalf so that we could be forgiven, so that spoiled vessel could be shaped into a new ball and he could begin to do that work of forming us into something beautiful and good and right. It represents the fact that when Jesus went to the cross, he took upon himself all of your sin, that God will not abandon you when you let your defenses down and let him begin to do work in your soul. And we come to this table together as a church. We do it together because it's also saying we're not gonna abandon each other. Why? Because the gospel rules this place and not the world. So this morning, I want to invite you to the table.
I'm going to pray in just a few minutes, and I invite you to come forward to grab a cracker and grab some juice. Go back to your seat and just spend some time praying and remembering the cross of Christ and being reminded that you have been completely washed clean of your sin. No matter the conviction that you might have felt this morning from God's word, you've been washed clean of your sin if you trust in Jesus. And you can lean upon that, and that right there means that Jesus is ready to continue to do that work inside of you. He's never gonna abandon you. And if you're here this morning and you don't trust Jesus, you're not sure what you believe about Jesus, I want you to know this is the gospel. We believe that he's rescued us from all of our sin. And it starts there. It doesn't start with us cleaning ourselves up first so that we would be worthy of him to begin this work in us. No, it it starts us just confessing In the midst of our sin, God, I need you just like David did. And this morning, you could do that as well. If you're in that place of convicted of your sin and you want forgiveness for your sin, you can pray to Christ right now and say, Christ, I I have nothing to offer you. I, I need mercy. And there will be mercy found for you. So let me pray. And then let's spend some time coming to the table and remembering what Christ has done for us. Lord Jesus, we come before you as David did. We confess our sin. We recognize that we have treated people the way we shouldn't have treated them. We confess that we've had thoughts that are evil. We confess that there are times we don't trust that you're really there. God, we confess that we just feel wise in our own eyes most of the time. We need your mercy. We need your grace. We need you to create something new inside of us. And so we offer ourselves to you, God, not just the shell, but the inner being. And we ask, God, that you would begin a work of renewal, of redemption, of healing, of forgiveness. And so, God, as we come to the table and as we remember the cross and what Christ has done to forgive us of our sins, God, we come before you and we lay our defenses down because we know you won't abandon us. Your steadfast love endures forever. And we ask God that you would do this work and use us, God, to show your love to the world around us. Amen. You can come forward when you're ready.